That's the opening of Brahms's Symphony No. 3 in F major, Opus 19. It's got that energy and that swinging momentum that characterizes so much of this symphony, a steady, powerful current underneath, like an ocean liner plowing through the waves. Now, Brahms was 50 years old when he wrote his Symphony No. 3. He wrote it in 1883, and 50 years is a very significant milestone. I recently saw it in an article described as an important milestone on the road to death, which is one way of looking at it. Certainly, it's a time for taking stock in a lot of people's lives, which is perhaps one reason why Brahms began this symphony with a very personal stamp. It's a motto, a musical motto of three notes that he used in his youth, F, A, and then F above that A. It stands for a German motto, Frei aber froh, free but happy. I'll just ask our leader, Stephen Bryant, to play that motto. So there you are, frei aber froh, free but happy, Brahms's philosophy, or at least it was in his youth. It's an okay philosophy for a young man, you might say, but for a 50-year-old bachelor, a rather lonely bachelor with a very tender heart behind the grumpy patrician facade, I wonder if that's quite so appropriate. Perhaps that's why Brahms changes the second note of the motto in the symphony from A to A-flat, makes it from a major interval to a minor interval, and underneath adds that interesting questioning dissonance. So it's possible here Brahms is saying a little something about the ambiguous nature of freedom, or to quote another old famous patrician bachelor, Dr. Johnson, marriage may have many pains, but celibacy has no pleasures. All right, that's an awful lot to read into three chords, but that element of regret in loss in this symphony can be seen in all sorts of other ways, not just in the tone of some of the passages. Just before the return of that motto, at a crucial point in the first movement of this symphony, just as we're about to begin the recapitulation, there could be, or in fact there almost certainly is, a reminiscence of a much earlier work by Brahms, a very interesting work, but also rather neglected. It's called Begrebnisgesang, burial or funeral hymn and it's for chorus and an orchestra of wind and timpani. Brahms wrote it in 1858, when he was 25, and it seems that he was particularly thinking of this as a burial tribute or a funeral tribute to someone who'd been hugely important to him, the composer Robert Schumann. Schumann had been a kind of artistic father figure to Brahms, had made extremely extravagant, it might sound, prophecies about what might come of Brahms's composing career, most of which turned out to be quite true. But almost as soon as the relationship had begun, it started to go wrong. Schumann's mental health began to fail. There was a terrible suicide attempt in 1854, and then two years later, his lonely death in a mental asylum. Well, now this is the interesting part of the Third Symphony, where it seems that Brahms is particularly invoking Schumann, or the memory of Schumann, through this song, Begrebnisgesang. Do you remember that violin theme that followed the original F? A-flat F motto at the beginning of the symphony. Well, just before the recapitulation, that theme becomes the focus of a particularly somber passage in this first movement. It's much slower. There's a kind of sepulchral color enhanced by the very low notes on the contrabassoon.
dotted figure in the bass. It's very close indeed to one passage in Begrebnis Gesang, where the choir sings about the anguished soul of the deceased who's been buried in the earth, but will then rise again when God's trumpets sound and his soul will live forever. So we have this sombre sound enhanced by the very low contrabassoon and this image from the burial song, a deep burial in the depths of the orchestra. And then indeed the brass do sound, the trumpets and the trombones. It's quite important there should be trombones too because in the German Bible of Martin Luther and in German tradition, it isn't the last trumpet as we're used to in this country, but the last trombone, die letzte Posaune. If you're ever wondering why Mozart uses a trombone instead of a trumpet to indicate the last judgment in his Requiem, that's why. But Brahms, he may have been no believer, but in a way he did certainly believe that Schumann's soul did live on in himself. So we have this sound of the brass, and particularly the trombones, the last trumpet, the, the soul rising and living forever in the words of the text. At this point, what do we hear but Brahms's own motto, F-A-F. -F. In other words, it's as though he's saying, Schumann is lost to us, but his soul does live on in me at that crucial point in the first movement of the Third Symphony. Mind you, you don't really need to know this to enjoy the way that Brahms engineers that triumphant return of the first theme, and from the darkest point in the first movement, it is a splendid moment on its own terms. So perhaps this invocation of Schumann, if that's what it is, is private. It's something he intends to be enjoyed only by a small number of people. There are other ways in which this first movement invokes Schumann which are much less private. That swinging one, two, three momentum of the opening of Brahms' symphony is very similar to the opening of Schumann's third symphony, the Rhenish symphony. But there's an even closer connection with Brahms' Third Symphony in the Schumann, near the end of Schumann's first movement. In fact, it's so close you could actually say it's specific. The theme that we've just heard at the beginning puts out a new development which begins on cellos and bassoons. We only hear it for a moment or two, but it's so like Brahms' first theme that it's incredibly striking. It's the same motif, isn't it? Brahms has taken it quite literally, note by note, from Schumann's Third Symphony and made it the basis of his own Third Symphony. So much in this symphony derives from that one idea. I rather like the story about when the English composer Ethel Smythe very bravely went to see Brahms and took him one of her own works to show him. It was a brave thing to do. Brahms could be quite caustic if he wasn't impressed with somebody's ideas. Well, Brahms looked over this score and he said... You know, you're supposed to make a penny do the work of a shilling. And here you go, throwing away pounds for nothing. Well, if this symphony number three of Brahms is his tribute to Schumann, his great homage to his friend, mentor, and father figure, at the same time he's also saying, look what I can make with what you throw away. You drop that penny almost casually. I'm going to pick it up and I'm going to make a gold coin out of it. And from that, create an entire symphony. 
Well, Brahms tends not to be quite so fleet-footed as Schumann in the Rhenish Symphony. There's a very steady, powerful momentum at the beginning, but after a while, Brahms begins to relax into something a little bit more genial. And the meter expands as well. We have nine beats in a bar instead of the original six beats in a bar. And on top of this is a woodwind tune, the kind of tune Brahms might almost have heard when he was enjoying a cup of coffee in one of his favorite Viennese cafes. It's a lovely moment, and we really do seem to see the worldly, relaxed, pleasure-loving side of Brahms in music like that. But almost immediately after it, that F, A-flat, F, personal motto, casts a shadow over the music again on the oboes and bassoons, and from that, Brahms builds a big, much more determined and possibly more anguished climax. Brahms's climax building is particularly fine in this first movement, and it's that sense of climax, of organic growth, is sustained right the way through the following development section, right through to that dark, slower reminiscence of Begrebnisgesang we heard a moment or two earlier. Now, Brahms's developments have sometimes come in for criticism. He can sometimes be a bit academic, as though he takes a motif and puts it through a usual set of tricks, imitation here, inversion there, splitting it up, breaking it down into units. I remember recently playing through with a friend the first movement of the second violin sonata, and there's a beautiful melody that begins that sonata. When we get to the beginning of the development, I remember thinking, oh, please don't develop that melody. And sure enough, he does, starts picking it apart. You can't help feeling that maybe he's putting expectations on this theme that it's not meant to bear. But in this first movement of the Third Symphony, you can't say that at all. There's a real sweep behind the development that carries the ideas forward and gives life to everything. You take that worldly, lovely little cafe tune that we heard on the clarinet a moment or two ago. In the middle of the development section, Brahms transforms that into an impassioned, forward-surging idea, a kind of tragic waltz led by the violas and the cellos. We'll take it from the high point of the climax we heard a moment or two ago, so we can hear how Brahms swings into this new version of that old theme. <laughs> 
The end of the movement is particularly marvellous because that current that's been carrying the music all the way through has never really abated. It's a continual flow of great ideas and natural developments. Brahms seems at first to be building towards a grand triumphant apotheosis of the first theme, the Schumann theme. But then this subsides beautifully and quietly. And the last thing we hear is the motto, F, A-flat, F, rising on slow wind chords, magnificently dovetailed with the descending phrase of the opening melody. end after all that passion and forward drive. It's rather striking that all four movements in this symphony end quietly. Now that may not seem quite so strange today, but in 1883 when this symphony was written it's a bit different. Now, in fact if any of you here or any of you listening to this program know of an example before 1883 of a symphony in which all movements end quietly, please let me know because I can't think of one. Even Beethoven's pastoral symphony, which the first four movements, including the storm movement and quietly, at the very end Beethoven tacks on two fortissimo chords on what seems like a fadeaway end. So at the very end he has to have a conventional bum bum to end the symphony. Not once in this symphony does Brahms have an emphatic end. They're all quiet, they all tail away to nothing. And I think that's unprecedented, but as I said, if any of you wish to put me right, you're very welcome. I mentioned in the first movement that Brahms has occasionally been criticised for being a little over-particular or academic in the way he develops themes. Something else he's sometimes been criticised for is the sound of his orchestration, his scoring. Well, OK, so Brahms may not be a stupendous musical colourist, a magician like his contemporary Wagner. But can you imagine this music from the beginning of the second movement, scored by Wagner, or in any other way than the way Brahms scores it here? Surely this sound is perfect for the musical ideas.
That sounds so right, doesn't it? You have the clarinets and the bassoons with that folk song-like theme, with little discreet touches of added colour from the horns and the flutes at the end of each phrase, and then those rather beautiful responses from violas and cellos and basses, like a kind of choral response. And just after that extract, there's a little descending phrase on the oboe, which is a colour we haven't heard yet in this movement, which just makes it so much more effective. Uh, there's even more effective use of this classical orchestral lineup later on in this movement. The second theme is a very strong contrast to the first, although it's also a quiet and song-like theme. The first theme is very stable and homely. The second is melancholy and harmonically restless. It starts with a plaintive clarinet and bassoon this time, then oboe and horn, and again, rich divided string chords underneath, but to a totally different effect. Now, one thing Brahms seems to be particularly good at in this symphony is spotting what you might call the tragic potential in a theme. We saw how he turned that rather homely little clarinet waltz tune in the first movement into something really surging and passionate and Schumann-esque in the middle of the development. And that little figure we've just heard, that plaintive song on the clarinet and bassoon, becomes something surprisingly stormy and violent even in the finale. So there, Brahms presents us with an idea in the second movement, but leaves one particularly striking development of it until much later in the symphony in the finale. It's one of the many ways in which these movements interlink and cross-refer to each other. But there is an important and interesting development of that plaintive second theme in the second movement, the slow movement. In fact, it's not so much a development of the theme itself, but of just its first two notes, that very characteristic da-da rhythm, first of all on the woodwind, and then answered by those string harmonies. That simple alternation like that becomes the basis of a really quite extraordinary passage near the end of the movement. Those two repeated notes and the chords are passed around the orchestra from section to section. Each time they do, they change colour. It's a moment of quiet, absorbing magic.
That really is an extraordinary passage, those changing, shifting colours all the time, passed backwards and forwards among the orchestra, never quite in the same order twice. It's actually quite forward-looking. You might even hear a kind of pre-echo there of the famous movement Farben, Colours, from Schoenberg's Five Pieces for Orchestra, where again, chords shift in colour as they're passed around the orchestra. Well, Schoenberg did admire Brahms deeply and borrowed a lot of ideas from him. He never claimed to learn anything particular from Brahms' sense of colour, but I think that's one passage in which he may well have done exactly that. Well, there are some magical colours in the third movement as well. This is not a scherzo, as another composer might have made it. After Brahms's youth and the magnificent, passionate scherzo of the great piano quintet, Brahms fought rather shy of writing powerful, driven, muscular, Beethoven-type scherzos. They weren't really in his nature. Often his third movements, his scherzos, are more in the nature of an intermezzo, a, a movement of a lighter nature interpolated between more serious stuff. But here, this movement, you, you could say it's lighter in some senses, but it's also exquisite in itself. And there's something of the soul of the symphony in this movement too, Brahms's romantic soul, his debt to Schumann, who, like him, was not only a fine symphonist, but also a great composer of songs. The lovely first theme, which is introduced by the cellos in this movement, is a reminder of what a great composer of Lieder Brahms was. lovely. I read someone the other day saying that Brahms wasn't a natural melodist, that all his melodies are somehow rather synthetic, they're ingeniously constructed rather than felt in the way that Schumann's are. Well, I think a tune like that shows us what a ridiculous comment that is. It's a beautiful, spontaneous outpouring of song. But I compared it with Brahms's leader, and in all good leader since Schubert, the accompaniment is almost as important as the melody. It's like the hook in rock music. It sets the mood and carries the melody on its momentum. Now, if we just take away that cello melody and listen to the string figures in the accompaniment, you notice it's quite ingenious too, and it also plays a part in setting the musical scene. Listen to the way they overlap and dovetail, providing a kind of even flowing momentum that carries the tune. one of many passages in the symphony that remind you just how much Elgar learnt from Brahms. He was actually particularly fond of this symphony. There are quite a few passages where I think you can hear what Elgar learnt from Brahms. But the mood of that accompanying figure, the accompanying figure to the song in the Brahms symphony, it's almost like rustling foliage. It has something of the mystery of a deep forest. That's made even clearer when the melody returns on woodwind and underneath it the ultimate German romantic instrument, the horn.
and later in the movement, after the central trio section, the horn gets to play that theme on his own. Although it's quite considerate of Brahms to give him a chance to warm up first in the company of other woodwind instruments before his big moment. I won't spoil that, though. You can hear that when we hear the performance itself. It's a lovely, magical moment. And it really is a truly romantic moment in a sense, particularly a German romantic moment, because the horn in a lot of cultures, and particularly in German musical culture, is the ultimate instrument as the symbol of the forest. Now, in German music, opera, literature, art, the horn is constantly represented as having associations with the forest. And the forest particular is one of those key symbols in German culture and art. If you think of Weber's opera, Der Freischutz, the first great German nationalist opera, that's set entirely in the forests. You think of Schoenberg's Fertlete Nacht, or even the nightmare opera Erwartung, that too takes place in a forest. Think of the Brothers Grimm, all those fairy tales where the fateful transforming encounter with something threatening and elemental like the wolf or the witch happens in the forest. It's a place of danger, but it's also a place of magical transformation, of becoming. It's interesting, I remember a German friend of mine pointing out when he first arrived here how much English art and how much even the expressions in the English language are saturated in images from the sea. Our nautical past really still lingers here in phrases like a sea change or three sheets to the wind or whatever. German language doesn't have image of the sea because the sea plays very little part in their history. But the forest there is the great elemental symbol, the magical place where transforming, exciting, dangerous, but possibly liberating things might happen. And I'm sure that Brahms is thinking of kind of romantic woodland imagery, particularly in this song-like third movement, as he is in so many of his leader. But this is a point at which I think it might be interesting to bring in our conductor, conducting the BBC Symphony Orchestra today, Douglas Boyd, ask a few questions about the practical side of performing this symphony. Interested listening to that horn part. It is quite chromatic. It's a very, it's an elaborate and interestingly shapely melody, and it's quite different in a way from the kind of melodies you get for horns in classical symphonies earlier on. How easy would that have been on the kind of instrument that was around in Brahms's time? Well, maybe you should be asking our wonderful uh, first horn player. Um, but I, I would guess that in some ways it might even have been slightly easier. I mean, first of all, don't forget that, that Brahms played the horn, so he was he had a personal relationship with the, the instrument. He knew what he was dealing with. But the horn at that time would have had a slightly smaller bore, which meant, in, uh, basically, that you, you, you used less puff. There was less air required for a solo such as this. So there were some advantages over it. And so those great, great long lines would have been even more effortless. I think they would have been more effortless. Yeah. And, and don't forget that the, the horn, although with the introduction of the Alexander horn, it changed in some ways radically. The fundamentals have remained the same. And if you listen to the Vienna Philharmonic, even today, the horns that they play are not so far removed from the horns that Brahms would have known at that time. And you just reminded me that the, the instrument that, as, that Brahms grew up on was actually called the Valt horn, wasn't it? The woodland horn, That's the right, forest yeah. horn. Yes. So this, this connection goes right back. Well, I mentioned how the beginning of this movement was a bit like a song. And it often strikes me that this, and like the beginning of the Fourth Symphony, it almost begins like a piano piece rather than an orchestral piece with this upbeat that's much easier for you to gauge if you're playing it as a soloist than, than for you, the conductor. Um, I mean, is, is that sort of thing hard? For you? Do, we, do we sense the pianist in Brahms, the orchestrator, sometimes? And, and, and does that make it more difficult for you as a conductor? Well, we know that Brahms, of course, was an incredible pianist from, from all accounts, but actually... Uh, I would suggest that he's one of the truly great orchestrators. 
and and I think that in his imagination um, when he was playing this out on the piano he had absolutely the perfect idea of what orchestral colour he wanted and I think any criticism of him as an orchestrator is, is, is misplaced I think he's the most wonderful uh, orchestrator of colour for the orchestra well, I think it's fascinating to hear you say that because I've often felt the same thing as yes. an outsider but yeah. that makes sense I, I do remember when I was a truly terrible cellist playing <laughs> in sort of am am amateur orchestra performances of Brahms' symphonies and often being struck by the fact that the cello parts sounded almost like piano left-hand figurations. Mm. And yet he does translate that perfectly successfully into orchestral terms, doesn't he? He doesn't make the mistake Elgar said that some pianists think that the orchestra has a sustaining pedal. He, he seems to know how to make a sound and make it work. No, I think he's a complete master of, of the orchestra. What about... Is it the kind of music, though, that plays itself, or are there, are there practical <laughs> problems? Yeah, I don't know many music that, 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 that completely plays itself. I think there are, there, for me, there are two uh, enormous uh, problems or, or conundrums uh, about Brahms. One is the, the, the rhythmic ambiguity of all his symphonies, the, these extraordinary cross-rhythms where he's, in a sense, throwing the bar line to one side. And, and this is something that we, you've heard in some of these examples in the first movement particularly and again in the last movement where uh, you're not clear where your feet are off the ground because the 6-4 the rhythm is being thrown, thrown to one side. So that's a huge challenge. Oh, that, that, the trio section, the central trio section of this third movement is a pretty good example of that. You've got these chords, haven't you? Da, dum, yeah. dum, and you don't know where the first beat yeah. of the bar is, do And we you? were talking about that yeah. yesterday. If, if, if one was to think that the, the upbeat is in a, a ghostly sense now the bar line. Mm. The bar line has been thrown by one beat and for the audience you're given this ambiguity of whether you're understanding the score or not, you're given this rhythmic ambiguity which I think is part of the, the joy of, of playing his music. The way Brahms plays with rhythm is actually a lot subtler than he's been given credit Absolutely. for, isn't he? Yeah. yeah. 
And the other side of it is that, that uh, you know, he's talked about as being um, the ultra-romantic, but he's, in my opinion, he's also the ultimate classicist. And uh, uh, we know that he, he spent hours and hours and hours in libraries studying Couperin, stu studying Baroque music, studying the, classis, the classic repertoire. He was one of the pioneers of the early mu music yeah, movement, before it, before yes. it became fashionable. And, um, and I think that there's this great battle and balance uh, between seeing his music as big, fat, sustaining lines, if, you, if, I was to, if I was to caricature it, and also this extraordinary inner life of the symphonies, um, the inner parts, which are more akin to um, what I would suggest is Beethoven writing or, or, or even Mozart and Haydn. And it's getting this balance between the speaking, the linguistic side of it, the, the, the classical style, and this, these wonderful long lines of, of romantic melody. Well, thank you for talking to me about that, Douglas. And actually, you're, you're bringing out this sort of classical, romantic, contrasting sides of Brahms. I think it's particularly relevant now we begin to look at the beginning of the finale. So maybe we can have a look at that. The finale begins, like the third movement, in the minor key, on the dark side of the home key of F, F minor. And it begins with this whispering, sliding, serpentine theme on the strings. We were talking about Brahms' sense of rhythm a moment or two ago. Now, here's a good example, because immediately Brahms takes that theme and he stretches it out rhythmically on the woodwind, like a pianist improvising with the theme and playing with it rubato, elongating some of the notes, so that it sounds more floating and free, like this. Now comes what it's very tempting to call a flashback, because Brahms suddenly returns to that restless, melancholy second theme from the second movement. But now it has a grave, sinister quality, like a rather somber hymn tune. And again, very distinctive use of the lowest notes on the contrabassoon to add a particular somber darkness to the music. And then suddenly it's as though Brahms says, well, hang on, this movement started as an urgent searching allegro. We seem to have gone somewhere else entirely. He rouses himself like someone suddenly pulling themselves out of a kind of half dream.
It's as though those quieter ideas we heard, the stretched out, improvised version of the first theme on the woodwind, then that solemn, sinister hymn tune in the deep winds, it's as though they're a kind of huge parenthesis in the movement, or an aside, or a kind of musical daydream. And in fact, you could cut all that out, the, the improvised woodwind version, expanded version of the theme, and then the chorale on the woodwind and brass. And you could go straight from the opening into the later allegro, and if you didn't know the piece, you'd probably not notice there was any surgery involved at all. I hope Brahms isn't listening, but we thought we'd try this for an experiment. Just go straight from the beginning right into the main allegro, as though this were a continuous movement. Brahms will forgive me for that, but it does sort of work, doesn't it, if you're thinking purely in classical terms of a symphony starting from A and moving to B for the second subject. Well, Brahms has been described as a great classicist of his time, but what that shows, I think, in that passage is that those interesting little interpolations almost, the woodwind expanded improvised version of the first theme and then that flashback to the second theme in new colours, they're all a kind of dreamlike parenthesis. They're very typically romantic and particularly typical of the kind of things Schumann does in works like Chrysleriana. They're not there for abstract structural reasons, but to create a kind of atmosphere, a mood, and a sense of storytelling. Now, what kind of story you hear when you listen to the music is over to you, in a way. It's up to you. That's the point of a dream. There are as many interpretations of a dream as there are interpreters. But certainly, this is a kind of aspect that makes Brahms so much more interesting than if he had just been a dry kind of neoclassicist. He could start a movement like a conventional classical symphonic allegro and continue it like it, but in between, we get pure fantasy and some of the most marvellous imaginative touches in the piece.
So that's the side of Brahms that clearly is uh, romantic. But there are other examples of a kind of inspired development going on in this movement. And one that particularly strikes me comes again to this subject of rhythm, which Douglas and I mentioned earlier on. That snaky first theme we heard at the beginning is very much in crotchets and quavers of kind of even rhythm. But later on, it takes on a more flowing rhythm on cellos, and in a very remote key too, B minor, which is about as far as possible to get from the home key of F. So it's almost as though the change in rhythm reflects the change in harmony. We're entering new territory. But then comes that song, improvised, stretched version of the theme on woodwind from the beginning of the movement. And then, by magic, the music slows down and eases back into the original F major. was a very Schumann-esque, romantic way of thinking, almost as though Brahms is moving by association, by ideas. It is more dreamlike, in a sense, than classically logical. At the same time, we've got the new kind of gently rustling foliage on the strings there, which we can hear, which dominates the music right to the end, and the kind of wonderful autumnal glow that spreads over the music. The last thing, almost, we hear in this symphony is that personal motto again, that sadder but wiser version of the Frei Abba Froh motive, F, A-flat, F. It tries to rise twice on woodwind through the strings, then finally comes the moment of release and the first phrase of the original impassioned forward-surging violin melody, the phrase taken straight from Schumann's Rhenish symphony, now sinks to rest quietly on rustling strings. Brahms's personal motto, F, A-flat, F, and Schumann's theme intertwined at the very end of the symphony. Perhaps this is, in a way, a particularly personal work for Brahms. Brahms, who once saw himself as Schumann's heir, and at the same time sees himself not so much as a direct inheritor, but someone who's taken Schumann's inheritance very much in his own way. Schumann lives on in me, he seems to say, the free but happy, question mark. But it is a question mark, too. There is an element of ruefulness, autumnal melancholy in that end, because that dissonance on the second note of the motto, dee-da, that never quite goes away, not even at that peaceful end. So perhaps this is more a statement of resignation rather than any kind of triumph. It might go some way as to explaining as to why Brahms ends all the movements of this symphony, this third symphony, piano or pianissimo.
Well, there's an awful lot of things for you to consider now as we hear Brahms's Symphony No. 3 in F major in its entirety. So you can judge for yourself just how true these things we've uncovered are. Here is Brahms's Symphony No. 3 in F major, performed by the BBC Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Douglas Boyd. <laughs> 